Hebrews chapter 11. Let's start in verse 30 and read down to verse 40. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin in verse 30. He picks up with a story about the walls of Jericho. Join me there. <clears throat> By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign, put foreign uh, armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Here's the turn. Here's the turn. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Join me as we pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask for help. We need help. We've gathered today on the Lord's Day in need of help. So, Spirit of God, do what only you can do. Keep me true to what the Bible says. Make it useful for your people and help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. All of our heroes suffer, every one of them. One of the trademarks of being a Christian is that we look at heroes, they are people that actually suffer. Certainly we sometimes idolize celebrities, we'll celebrate athletes, we might even lionize singers or TikTok stars, but they aren't our heroes. When it comes to heroes, we want something different. They are people we look to for inspiration and strength. We, we look to those who have suffered, done so with dignity and grace and endurance. I mean, even the writer of Hebrews will pick it up in chapter 12, even the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus, who for the joy who was who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered for our joy. Our heroes suffer. Last week I stood in 
Oxford, England, right there at the Martyr, Martyr's Monument, the memorial. There were Hugh Latimer and um, Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Burned at the stake for what we believe. Why do we go to those places? Go to a spot in a road, has an X marked where they were burned. Why do we stand there? We, we, we stand there inspired and strengthened and thinking, yeah, yeah, I want that. I want that kind of faith. I want to be faithful to Christ in a, in a hostile and hateful world. And the preacher here, remember the context. Why is this here? This is the pastor writing to his people that were struggling and suffering. And in Hebrews chapter 11, he just lines them up. That's why it's called the roll call of faith. He lines them up, believer after believer, puts in front of his people and in front of us to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith, to, to feed our souls, to prepare our hearts to do hard things in the name of Jesus. To do those hard things with a profound, with a profound joy, a gospel joy. Listen, brothers and sisters, I have one goal today. My goal is to stiffen your spine, your spiritual spine, for the task at hand so that, so that you might be faithful to the God that loves you and purchased you at the cross of His Son, Jesus. That even if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, that, that God would take it. That faith might grow into tree trunk sturdiness. That you might abide in Christ as Christ abides in you. That you might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the, the fellowship of his suffering. That you might become like him in his death. That you will have a genuine God-honoring faith in the crucified, resurrected Jesus that you might rejoice in this life knowing that if God is for you, nothing can be against you. That's the life of faith. To not hate the suffering. Why? Because suffering, suffering is the cost of God-honoring faith. Suffering is the currency. That's where God works. Suffering is the cost of God-honoring faith. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not for the faint of heart. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not easy chair Christianity. The kind of faith I'm talking about is graveside faith. You can stand there and weep and endure. The kind of faith I'm talking about is through tears faith. The kind of faith I'm talking about is lonely and yet faithful. God-honoring faith. So let's get to it, but let's ease into it just like the preacher does by degrees. Notice where he starts. Let's see what faith does. Here's the first point, number one. Faith shows us God's power and mercy. 
power and mercy. You probably already saw that in verse 30 and 31. God's power and God's mercy takes us to one event, that is the walls of Jericho, to show us two things, power and mercy. Let's look first at the power of God right there in verse 30. You know the story. It's the walls of Jericho. We went through Joshua. Joshua chapter 6, when God calls Joshua to lead the people to march around the walls of Jericho for seven days. On the seventh day, do it seven times, and the walls will fall down. What does God do? God breaks through the natural order of events to bring a great victory against all odds. Knocks down the walls. Knocks down the walls of a fortress to bring a victory to the people of God that they could not have unless he actually did it. This is, this is what we would call a miracle. Now be careful how you use the word miracle. Um, be careful. Sometimes I feel like we use the word miracle a whole lot, but if everything becomes a miracle, then nothing is a miracle. You understand? Miracle, what is that? That is God overriding the natural order of events to bring about something that could not happen in the natural order of, event, of events. Most of the time, God is willing and uses the natural means of the world that he created to bring about his will. Now and then, he breaks in. What is a miracle? A miracle is you were diagnosed with a terminal disease and should have died in a month, and yet God, has, in his miraculous kindness, has taken it away. What is a miracle? A miracle is flipping through the pictures and seeing that car wreck that was... And thinking, how did she survive that? What is a miracle? A two-year-old wandered off into the pool and fell in. Nobody saw. Until it was too late. Had no pulse and wasn't breathing. But, but was brought back. A miracle. Now and then, God shows his power. We are reminded of, of God's power. I read, a, I read a biography while we were traveling uh, this week, written by a man named Ian Murray. Ian Murray has written several uh, biographies of Christian people. He's not a great writer. He has great information. So you just sort of plow through it to get the information. He wrote a, a book on a man named A.W. Pink. I use A.W. Pink commentaries quite a bit. He wrote a big commentary on Hebrews. A.W. Pink lived to be 66 years old. He was a preacher and a writer at the turn of the century, 20th century, and, uh, but he couldn't keep a church. This was not a really nice guy. In fact, he pastored a church in Spartanburg. So I had no idea. I thought he was just in England. He was in Spartanburg, South Carolina at a Baptist church, and they fired him after two years. He had the unfortunate ability to tell everything he thought about every person all the time. Well, you need to probably not do It's hard to be a preacher if you do that. But man, he had great insight into Scripture. And he looked at this passage and he says there are several lessons to learn about the power of God right here in verse 30. What do we learn? Well, here's one. We learn that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Marching around walls at the walls of Jericho, marching around walls, whoever heard of fortress walls falling, just falling. That, that God has to do that. Look, you're praying for something miraculous you're praying for God to do something that can't be done on your own power you keep you keep taking that to the Lord believing that God can God's ways are not our ways not only that we learn the lesson that God is superior 
God is superior to the laws of nature. There is an order to the created universe, but God overrides that. God can break in anytime he wants. You ask God in prayer, ask him to do the impossible, and he just might do it. Here's the third thing we learned. Insurmountable problems pop up from time to time in the life of faith. Sometimes we just run up on something that is beyond us. I can't fix it. God puts that in our life so that we might surrender to God and trust him. What about the walls of Jericho? What do we learn there? We learned that um, this is a reminder that Satan's strongholds cannot stand before God. Satan builds a fortress. God knocks it down anytime he wants. One of the greatest evidences of that is your own salvation. Is that when we were dead in our trespasses, Christ died for us. It's the power of God. The power of God. Faith, faith shows us the power of God. But come down to verse 31, you'll see the, the lady Rahab there. Faith shows us the mercy of God. You see the mercy of God in verse 31. You know the story. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute. Now, isn't it interesting? Every time we see her name, Rahab, she gets the sobriquet prostitute. She's called every single time. Why is that there? Is that there to demean this woman? No. She gets that name to remind us of the mercy of God. Here is this pagan prostitute woman that God comes and sees and decides to save. Her life didn't honor God at all. There was no reason for her to be saved, and God saves her. That shows us the mercy of God. You know what that shows? That shows us the divine grace of God. You know what that shows us? That shows us the providence of God that he would take two spies from Israel, send them into Jericho to that one pagan prostitute woman and her put her faith in God. That's the providence of God. What you have here is the powerful mercy of God to save, listen, brothers and sisters, the powerful mercy of God to save the most stained sinner. Here is... Here is us, we're being reminded of the goodness, the goodness of God that's ultimately found at the cross of Jesus to press us toward a God-honoring faith. Is it, is it, is your, is your faith a God-honoring faith? You see, faith shows us the power and the mercy of God. Let me show you something else. Come down the page a little bit to verse 32. Here's the second point, number two. Faith shows us that God can use anyone. I don't understand this one, verse 32. I mean, when you read verse 32, you find six names here in the Bible. That honestly, if I were writing the Bible, I would have left those names out. They're terrible. I'm going to go quickly here because in verse 32, the preacher's going quickly too. He might have been a Baptist preacher. He knew his audience. Look what he says, verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell, and here come, here come the names, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. 
I tell you what, let's do. Let's do um, just a quick bio of each person, each one, and then uh, come back, maybe make some observations and some lessons. Look there with me in verse 32 at Gideon. Why Gideon? Now, I know he did this wonderful thing when God reduced the army down to 300 people and won a great victory that God gave Gideon a great victory. But go read the story. In Judges chapter 6, when God comes and appears to him, Gideon is in a wine press that has walls so he can hide from the Midian, from the Midianites. He's threshing wheat in the wine press. God calls him to lead a great victory, and he, he instantly starts to question God. He asks for signs and has a lack of faith and doesn't have any courage. Finally, reluctantly, he, go, he leads and God gives a great victory. And Gideon, after the victory, creates an ephod that would become this means of idolatry. God's people fell into idolatry because of what Gideon did. And yet, here he is. as a picture of faith. If that's not bad enough, there comes another name, Barak. You see that? Or Barak, however you want to say it. Barak, in, in Judges chapter 5, you can see the story of Barak and what you, get, what you find out when you go there is he's not a hero. He didn't have the courage to go into battle if the woman Deborah didn't go with him. Deborah's the judge. And he tells Deborah, look, I can't, if you'll go with me, I'll go. That's how brave he was. You find out that Deborah and Jael, two women, actually won the battle. Why does he get a mention? And yet there he is by faith. There's Samson. My goodness, Samson. What do you say about Samson? Read the story of Samson. He's a Nazarite, same vow probably that the Apostle Paul took. He's supposed to be set aside as a religious man. He takes his vow flippantly. He doesn't care. He's disrespectful to his mom and dad. He's got great strength. He uses his great strength for his own. He's impulsive. He's promiscuous. Basically a meathead. And, I mean, the last time th thing we see of Sam, he's pulling down a building on top of people. That's how he dies, and yet, here's his name. Or, my goodness, it only gets worse. Jephthah, who wants to talk about Jephthah? Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, he is a terrible example. Jephthah's a renegade pretender to leadership, illegitimate foolishly vowed to sacrifice his daughter if God would give him a victory. God gave a victory, and he followed through breaking God's law, and yet, Samuel is probably the shining star in the list. Samuel is uh, the hinge between the judges and the kings. Samuel lives an exemplary life, except that you get to Samuel, and you find out his children are terrible. Son's Dishonor the Lord? Or, or come down the way, David. We know that David is a man after God's own heart, but David, you know the terrible. David got lazy in battle. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, killed her husband, Uriah. His family goes off the rails. Absalom is killed. He doesn't take care of Tamar, who was sexually abused. And yet, here he is. Look, we use his psalms for worship. We see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Davidic line. And you step back and wonder, what are those people doing there? 
What do we learn collectively? I think there are a couple of lessons. Here's one. We learn that the Bible is true because the Bible shows us the whole picture. The Bible shows us the feet of clay and all of these heroes. Why does God show us their feet of clay and mistakes and sins? He shows us that so that our faith might not be in people, our faith might be in the power of God, not people. What, why else do we see these, these men listed here? Why are they listed here? Why do we see their sins? It's a reminder that, that someone, maybe you, maybe you have sinned so terribly, you've done so terribly. It really is shameful. This is a reminder, even if God will use you in spite of that. Why are these names here? It seems like in the Bible that God, here's another reason, that God delights in choosing those that seem most rebellious and using those that seem most unsuitable. The Apostle Paul was Saul killing people. Why would he use, it, it, it feels like God goes after those rebellious people. Why are these names here? I, I think one of the reasons is, you know, I've just listed there, I, I just gave you a bunch of sinful things about those six people. I just told you all the bad stuff about them. That's what we tend to do is, I could pick out all the terrible things about people in the Bible. That's what we tend to do. We remember sins. What we are told about God is what does he do at the cross? God remembers their sins no more. What does he remember? Their trust in him. That's what Christianity is. We go to the cross where mercy washes us, grace changes us, and God uses us. Faith shows us the power and mercy of God. Second point, faith shows us that God can save and use anybody. I'm going to give you a third consideration from the Bible. Number three, faith empowers us for the, for the battle, and every day is a battle. Faith empowers you for the battle, comma, and every day is a battle. Let me show you where I get this now. You, you start at verse 33 and you come down the page to verse 35 and what you find is nine quick statements. Nine quick statements that are blocked off into groups of three. So you have three, three, and three and they say something. Here's the first one. First in verse 33 you find this broad statement, this broad empowerment of faith. By faith they conquered kingdoms. You see that? Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promise, there are these principles that run throughout the entire Bible. Nobody's mentioned here. It's just a principle found. It's the preacher. What he's doing is saying in a general way that good things happen in your life. They're going to happen when you are living by faith in Christ. When you put your faith in God and his goodness found in Jesus, here's the preacher giving you a general principle so that you are saved. So, for instance, you are saved by faith. You are being sanctified by faith. Tomorrow, you're going to be strengthened by faith. 
this broad empowerment. God empowers you through faith. What else happens here? Well, faith also, here's the second thing in this passage, another group of three in verse 33 and following. Faith gives us this personal encouragement for, for the struggle you're in. Now it gets, it gets more personal here. Verse 33, near the end. See the end where he says, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. Now we kind of get a clearer picture. He's talking about something in particular. Stop the mouths of lions. That could have been David who told Goliath that, yeah, I've, look, I've wrestled the bear and the lion protecting the sheep. I know what to do. But probably he's talking about Daniel. Remember the story of Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den? Hungry lions, Daniel would have been a really good meal for those lions, and yet God shut the mouth of those lions. Did that by faith. Or has the power to quench fire. Come on down the page. Probably he's talking about in Daniel chapter 3, the, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that story? They wouldn't bow down to the golden idol, and Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bow down, I'll throw you into the fiery furnace. They said, you might as well go ahead and throw us in. God will deliver us, and it's that great, great phrase, but if not, but if not. Even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. God delivered them through the fire. Faith did that. Or the next phrase, escape the edge of the sword, that could be talking about Elijah at Mount Carmel when he defeated all of the Baal prophets, and, and Ahab's wife Jezebel said she was going to kill him. And he took off, and God provided. God honored that faith and delivered him. God cared for him just like he'll care for you. Or you keep going down the page in verse 34, that God empowers us to live with the weaknesses we have. Do you see that? It takes weakness and makes it strength. God gives us those weaknesses. Why do you walk with a limp? Why do you have the hurt? Why is that pain there? God gave it. Why do you have shortcomings? Why do you have heart problems? That's there to remind us of the surpassing power and greatness of God. See what the preacher's doing here? The preacher runs all the way up in verse 35 to the power of God to raise the dead. Elijah and Elisha were a part of that, giving back the dead to, to widow women. All of that becomes a display of God's power to raise the dead, looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus. And you read from verse 30 to verse 35, and they're all victories. They're all great things. God giving victory. And then there's a turn. Verse 35, you see it. I tried to point it out when we, when we read. All Christianity is not going to be muscular Christianity. We need help with the hardship. We need help with what, what, what I'm facing right now, the bewilderment. Where is God, you might wonder? What is God doing? Why does life hurt so bad? What is God doing with your faith at this very moment? Last point, number four. Faith. <clears throat> faith gives us power to endure. God is going to give you the ability through faith to endure. Let's go to the passage and look at it with me now. Right in the middle of verse 35. Be reminded of how a suffering faith is a God-honoring faith that will be used 
So three groups. You have persecution, you have death, and you have poverty. You see the persecution in verse 35, there at the end. They were tortured. Some were tortured. Some were physically hurt to get them to recant. Tortured. And they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Suffered mocking, flogging, chains, and imprisonment. And they endured it by faith. These are our heroes. They lived by faith. It gets even worse. Verse 37 it's not just torture. Some people are put to death. Go to the, the continent of Africa, the Middle East, sometimes North Korea. Christians are persecuted. Here's stoned or sawn in two or killed by the sword. You know, I mentioned uh, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They're burned at the state in Oxford. There was another with them, a man named Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And he watched his two friends die, burned at the stake by Queen Mary, who is Bloody Mary. And when he watched them die, it rattled him, as it would any of us. And he decided to sign the confession to spare his own life. After signing it, he had a, a guilty conscience, and he, he recanted his recantation and tried to unsign it. And they finally they burned him at the stake, too. And they burned him at the stake, and as he was burning, he took that hand that signed that confession and, and drove it into the fire. Why? Because he wanted to be remem remembered as somebody that died in the faith. You have persecution and death and then poverty. Come on down to verse 37. Verse 37 and verse 38. This is where many of us are going to end up. This is, I think, the kind of Christianity we're going to have to have in the world that we're living in now. Verse 37 tells us that... Um, not only were they stoned and sawn in two and killed by the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, the destitute, afflicted, mistreated, whom the world is not worthy of, wandered about in deserts, mountains, or homeless, dens and caves in the earth. And you wonder, why is this happening? What's going on? What is God doing? What are we learning? I, I went to A.W. Pink again, and he had some ideas about this. What is God teaching us right now? Here's the first one. Never forget, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He is on the throne of the universe, and he does everything according to his own will. Amen. God is God. Here's another thing, number two. Everything that enters our lives is ordered by God, who is our Father. Our enemies can do nothing against us without God's direct permission. Go and read the Bible. Think about Job. How, did, how was Job tortured? Satan went and had to ask God, I'm going to torture him. Can I do it? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, <clears throat> Satan is asking. He's demanding to sift you. He can't do it if I don't give him permission to do it. Everything that enters your life is ordered by God. Not only that, your enemies can do nothing against you without direct permission from God. Here's a third thing you learn. You better get, you better get hold of 
Romans 8.28 Christianity. Don't misinterpret it. Get a hold of Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. What does that mean? No matter, look at me brother or sister, no matter what Satan does, God will turn it for good. Maybe it's another lesson I think is here. What does faith do? Faith doesn't just look at the present circumstance. Don't just look at what you're in now. Don't just look at the pain you're in now. Faith looks through the present pain, the present conflict, and views the promised anticipation and reward we have in Christ. That's what verse 39 and 40 are about. Come down the page. The, the preacher wraps it up in verse 39 and 40. He does a little bit of a summary statement for chapter 11 where all of this is headed. It's all headed somewhere. It's the word promise. Do you see it in verse 39? And all of these, everybody he's named in chapter 11, all of these through all of these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. All the Old Testament heroes, they knew there was a promise of one coming. There was a coming Savior. They looked forward to Jesus. All of the Old Testament heroes looked forward to a promise. How are people saved in the Old Testament? The same way they are, we are saved now. Saved by God's grace through faith in the coming Christ. How are we saved? By God's grace through faith in what Christ has done on the cross. They didn't look. They didn't live to, they didn't live to see historically what God accomplished eventually. They didn't live to see historically that which their faith specifically embraced. They believed in one coming. Do you know that at the very time and center of history and the universe stands the cross of Jesus that unites us with every other person that will be saved in time and eternity? From Adam until this very moment, people that have God as their Father, Christ as their Savior, the Spirit as their Comforter, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a great comfort. And it's a faith worth living for. It's a faith worth dying for. A God-pleasing faith found only in Christ. This morning as we bring our, our preaching time to a close, I just want you to join me in a moment of Prayer and thinking. Just think with me for a moment. With your head bowed this morning, just think with me. Just think with me. Do you, would you bow your head and think with me. Do you have a God-honoring faith? Yours, you personally. Do you have a God-honoring faith? Here's another question to consider. <clears throat> Is Jesus Christ Lord? Is, is He the greatest treasure? 
If Christ is your greatest treasure, all other things pale in comparison, you can let go of them. Do you treasure Christ above all? Here's a question for all of you that maybe are, are, are visitors or you're just coming back to church. Let me ask you this. Have you put your trust in Christ and his work on the cross alone? Have you trusted in Christ alone to save you? Last question. Do you need help? It's available. Do you need help and strength? In a moment, we're going to sing our last worship song. It's a great time for you to come forward and let a pastor pray with you, to pray over you. Or maybe start the, start the conversation. What does it mean to have Christ as Lord, to have a faith that honors God? Father in heaven, we thank you for grace. Strengthen your people. Call men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And find us faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?